Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Thank you all for being here. From the outside, it might look quite strange to certain people why would a Zen Buddhist Sangha for so many years honor Dr. King? And of course, the best answer is, why not? Why not? Why do we honor Dr. King here? Look around. Yeah. We don't have many people of color here. And we should say that is a problem. What is it with this practice that keeps it kind of confined to us light-skinned folks? The Buddha himself was a person of color from India, like Sejun. Yesterday, we had a visitor from Japan, Matsubara Osho, who studied here in America, who married an African-American woman. The world is growing up to be truly international. If you had been here yesterday in the afternoon, you would have heard Nina, the little offspring, run up and down the stairs. In the same way that I would welcome people who are not just fair-skinned, in the same way I would welcome children. It was such a wonderful sound. So, I think it's a terrible thing to just put one quote up there. No quote can capture a lifetime of activism, a lifetime of any being. So for that reason, in my rather loose talk today, I have a lot of quotes. And I will fill them in as I see them fit in the storyline, in the little very thin red thread that might develop here. But there is not a single quote that can capture a lifetime of activism. Remember last night when I started, when we started out here together in our session, in the opening word, I brought up, in the opening words, I brought up one term. Does anyone remember? Emancipation. Emancipation, right. Emancipation. And I attached a couple of names to that from our own tradition. Do you remember who in our own tradition uses the word emancipation quite frequently? He's not alive anymore. Rinzai. Yeah, Rinzai. In the Rinzai Roku, we hear about emancipation. 
It is something that is really, really important to our practice. What does emancipation mean to Rinzai Zen practitioners? Hmm? That's a very good question. Let me read you a quote from the Rinzai Roku. And please keep in mind this quote really shows how important language is, how important context is. Because I'm reading this here at the same time where we are talking about Dr. King, who was a really fierce proponent of nonviolence. So keep that in mind how it could be misunderstood and don't misunderstand it, please. Followers of the way, if you want insight into Dharma as is, just don't be taken by the deluded views of others. Whatever you encounter, either within or without, slay it at once. On meeting a Buddha, slay the Buddha. On meeting a patriarch, slay the patriarch. On meeting an arhat, slay the arhat. On meeting your parents, slay your parents. On meeting your kinsmen, slay your kinsmen. And you attain emancipation. By not cleaving to things, you freely pass through. So do you really think anyone will be slain? No? It's a metaphor. Yeah. What do we have to slay? What is it that we have to have this very strong, is it a reaction? No, uh, action towards. What is it? Attachment to what? Anything. Anything. Oh, that covers everything. Our own egos. Well, that's one of the things, yeah. But of course, Gen Genkai gets the jackpot. Other no. <laughs> any concept, you know, any concept, any idea, the idea of an ego, the idea of others. And even Rinzai can't help himself but use the language that we have available. He says in the first sentence here, just don't be taken in by the deluded views of others. What about the others? Where are they? Inside. Inside, outside, all around, racist. There are no others. There are no others. And that goes to the core of the whole message of emancipation. No others. The great heart of Buddhism is the great heart of knowing that there are no others. The deluded views of others, 
There are no others. We delude ourselves if we think, first of all, that there are others. This practice is meant to bring us to a point of understanding, of fathoming our human condition and human existence that we realize that there, all of this is, this is myself. There is no distance. This is myself. But of course, we cannot be blind. We cannot be blind. Do we see? We see. We hear. And to that, Rinzai says the following, also in the Rinzai Roku. Followers of the way, mind is without form and pervades the ten directions. In the eye, it is called seeing. In the ear, it is called hearing. In the nose, it smells odors. In the mouth, it holds converse. In the hands, it grasps and seizes. In the feet, it runs and carries. Fundamentally, it is one pure radiance. Divided, it becomes the six harmoniously united spheres of sense. Since the mind is non-existent, wherever you are, you are emancipated. It's a wonderful saying that fits really nicely in our Rinzai Zen world. But we could continue Rinzai's sentences and say, mind is without form and pervades the ten directions. Yes, in the eye it is called seeing. In our actions, it could be called discrimination. In our feelings, it could be called hatred. It's not just one side. We are capable of the whole gamut of manifesting mind. And we all know how that plays out over the course of history. How many Zen Buddhist presidents did we have in America? <laughs> hmm. We might contemplate uh, that in modern times maybe we are reaching something close to emptiness. <laughs> uh, but, but not the full emptiness, but the absence of something that also is unspeakable. But looking at the history, did the Japanese system do much better than the Western systems? Was Zen Buddhism there? Clearly not. If you go to Kyoto, you find Mimiyama. Have you been there? Have you seen Mimiyama? It's just a little hill. And then you look up the characters and it says ear mountain. Oh, interesting. It doesn't look like an ear. 
No, it's a mountain that was amassed from the cut-off ears of the enemies in one of the Japanese overseas wars. <coughs> I think that's also a manifestation of mind, but not one that is helpful to us in society. So, are we political as Zen Buddhists or Buddhists in general? Does the Buddhist scriptures say you have to be engaged? Sometimes it's actually read, no, it says clearly here, you have to disengage. But is there really some, such a thing as engaged Buddhism? Or is there no such thing as non-engaged? It's important to think about. Think about it in this way. In the Tibetan tradition, there is not just talk about compassion and love and softness. There is also the Dharma warrior. So there is something really strong and important. And in that context, one of Dr. King's quotes really fits in perfectly. It talks about, he talks about a lot about love and hate and power and oppression. So as a Dharma warrior, keep in mind what we have seen in history. Dr. King says, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. So whenever I read what Dr. King wrote, of course we can see there is the play between love and hate. We know that there is nothing, hate will beget hate. And love is the only thing to turn an enemy into a friend. Hate cannot do that. As Zen practitioners, we know that is true, but we have also to be careful that we don't get stuck in that so clear, easy dichotomy. We have to look a little bit deeper. As Zen practitioners, we have to really dig very, very deep. And even Dr. King had one thing that he said that is quite pointed in this direction. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. What that means, we, I think we all would consider ourselves people of goodwill. And what 
we are being told here is just saying that is not enough. Just saying it will not cut it. We need more. And that is the Dharma warrior, the aspect of the Dharma warrior who actively helps transform this fleeting world of the 10,000 things. We could say from the absolute point of view of the universe, ah, human beings, don't matter. In these cataclysmic forces and dimensions that are out in the universe, in the cosmos, humans don't really matter. This is the same as Hakuin saying to his teacher after having his first experience of Mu when Shoju Rojin asked him, so how do you understand the koan of the dog and Buddha nature? Do you remember what Hakuin said? Can't lay a hand or a foot on that one. Can't lay a hand or foot on that one. You know what his teacher did, Shoju Rojin? He grabbed his nose and... <laughs> ah, what about that? This is the same dichotomy or the same challenge we have here. Well, of course, thinking about the universe and abstraction and all of that, it doesn't really matter. But wait until your nose gets twisted then you know it is very, very real. So you know you're allowed to move when, uh, when the cup leaves the floor. So one of the things that we as Zen practitioners make uh, an effort to do is to try to exit out of that cage of dualism, of polarity, of that dichotomy. Again, if there are no others, where, where would there be dualism? We have to hold it all. And we all know that this is the case, you know. If we look back at history and we know we are sitting here right now, we reap and we are reaping the benefits of a society and a civilization that was built on oppression of others. The last time I came for session here, we had the Indian Native American drummers next door who graced our session with the heartbeat of Native nations. We all know the terrible fate of African slaves taken from their homeland, brought here 
having laid foundations for what we are reaping today. Things have changed a little bit, yes, absolutely. But arguably, oppression has transformed from the overt kind and easily visible type of oppression to means of oppression that are less overt, more sophisticated, but nonetheless they are oppression. Maybe the way how it plays out is not visible to us because we are not the recipients of it. And that is always something to keep in mind. There's the talk about white privilege. And one might say, well, what does that have to do with Zen practice? We have to examine what that means. We have to examine what this culture ascribes to us, even if we come to some understanding we have to be careful to really know and not just gloss over it. Life is so much harder for so many other people in this world. And the, one of the first things that I was told and that really struck me deeply at my first session by my first teacher, Gen Nuroseyon, at the end of the session, he pointed out to us that, you know, what we are doing here is an undescribable luxury. Having the means to take the time to engage in this practice, having a place that is dedicated to this practice would not be happening if we were steeped in poverty. We are the ones who are lucky because it's available to us. But don't ever take it as a given. Poverty is something that is real. In 1964, Dr. King received the Nobel Prize. And in his speech, he talked about poverty a little bit. And I will read you just a short passage. A second evil which plagues the modern world is that of poverty. Like a monstrous octopus, it projects its nagging prehensile tentacles in lands and villages all over the world. Almost two-thirds of the peoples of the world go to bed hungry at night. They are undernourished, ill-housed, and shabbily clad. Many of them have no houses or beds to sleep in. Their only beds are the sidewalks of the cities and the dusty roads of the villages. 
There is nothing new about poverty. What is new, however, is that we have the resources to get rid of it. This was in 1964. How have we done? What year was poverty eradicated? Anyone remember? No. This poverty of means is, however, just one type of poverty. Even though many on this island of Manhattan live well, there's a different kind of poverty that can be found. What kind of poverty do you think that would be? Spirit. Yes. The poverty of spirit. The poverty of heart. Dr. King said, as long as there is poverty in this world, no man can be totally rich, even if he has a billion dollars. I think when he said that in 1961, a billion dollars was a lot of money. <laughs> Nowadays, certain uh, there are some toddlers out there. They are asking for five and more billion dollars to put some kind of enclosure around their playground. <laughs> that they think to own. And that is the manifestation of the poverty of spirit. The poverty of spirit comes, it leads back to what I, what I cited Dr. King saying about power without love, being reckless and abusive. But at the same time also, love without power. Now, one of the things in the dichotomy of rich and poor, of good and evil, black and white, is that we'd like to interact with the poles of that spectrum. Because it's so easy to point at yeah, this extreme and that extreme. But what we have to realize, of course, is in between, you find, what do you find often? The biggest enabler of the ills of society are not the extremes. What is it? The indifferent masses. Indifference. Indifference. I don't care. It doesn't affect me. Indifference. In our practice, have you ever experienced indifference? 
well, it comes down the pike quite often, right? Yeah. Right. Indifference is so much this, it's almost like a sticky uh, mucus-like substance. It's yucky. And it makes things slower. We have to break out of this indifference in our practice as well, you know? Having that strong determination and Roshi, Shinge Roshi, but also, of course, So and Roshi and all the Roshis, they always talk about that we have to have a great vow. And that great vow may be whatever it is, is first of all to pull us out of that stagnation of indifference. Yes, we all agree with Dr. King when he said, the time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total, direct and immediate abolition of poverty. So while we might not be able to give material arms or material gifts to help in this world. There is something that we can give that does not cost us a single cent. And that would be ourselves. Giving ourselves freely away is the generosity of a bodhisattva. Dr. King strikes me as an undeclared bodhisattva. And there are so many others undeclared bodhisattvas that knowingly, unknowingly, willingly or unwillingly participated in helping us as society and as humanity to grow. So in the context of the civil rights movement, there's not just Dr. King. I'm thinking of other bodhisattvas like Rosa Parks or Emmett Till. If you don't know who Emmett Till is, after Sishin, please go and look it up. I would call him an unwilling, not biased choice bodhisattva. So, I know it would be much nicer to talk about love. And I promise you, <laughs> if you follow this practice with open eyes, it is the one thing you will come back to over and over again. There is nothing that is more powerful. There is nothing that will 
let us know more that there are no others than this experience of true love. So, so how do we solve this problem? How do we solve it? Dr. King said, the best way to solve any problem is to remove its cause. Well, now from a Zen point of view, that would be saying, well, well, do we have to uh, uh, commit a seppuku? We have to kill the ego. Not only our kinsmen, our parents. This is... What is the cause? What is the cause? Any Buddhists here? No? No. Who talks about the cause of all this suffering? Uh, Shakyamuni himself. Does he identify anything that stands behind that? Craving. 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 In the craving zoo. Have you been to the craving zoo? No? No? There are three animals in there, right? You don't even have to go anywhere to visit that zoo. Everybody has that cage inside, right? What are those animals? Yeah, greed, anger, and delusion. And what, what are the actual animals in the picture? A pig, yeah, a pig, and what else? A snake and a rooster, a rooster. And if you look at the Tibetan wheel of life, they are right in the middle, in the middle. And the rooster pecks, has in his beak the tail of the snake. The snake bites the pig, and the pig has the feathers the, of the rooster in its mouth. So they all are together and happily turn around the wheel of suffering. So the best way to solve any problem is to remove its cause. We as Buddhist practitioners are really well equipped to know where the work lies then. Greed, anger, and delusion. The rooster, the snake, and the pig. So, when we look at history, we can feel bad about what happened. What can we do about it? About what happened? About the past? Yeah. Nothing. 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 A tone. Okay. Who's right? Both. We cannot change the past. But we can learn from it. And atonement is 
one of the ways we do it. Remember, we in the morning service, not today because we had a ceremony, but usually there's a verse of atonement in there. All the harmful karma ever committed. Yeah, remember that? Next door, that room, what name does it have? Koindo. The hall of light and dark. It was dedicated that way on Shobuji's 50th anniversary as a place for reflection of that what was shining bright in the history of this organization, of the darks that came with our history. And to give us all the opportunity to sit in it and see the light and dark in our own mind, in our own heart, and to atone. Atonement, principally, is the recognition of our own incompleteness. None of us is infallible. And it takes a lot of guts to come to that understanding and to live up to it. So atonement and the manifestation out of that is of course a manifestation of the vow not to repeat errors we have made before. You know how difficult that is. Yeah? In Zazen. I will not stray and think. I will not stray. I will be single-minded. Oh. What's for lunch? <laughs> oh yeah, that was really, really, I will not stray. <laughs> and that's okay that's how we learn that's how we learn and that's how we also as society should learn and in the end can you change society who is able to change society Joshua why don't you please declare that uh there will be no more xenophobia. <coughs> okay. It's done. It would be really nice if it were that way, but it is not. However, we can sit here and we can vow to ourselves, I will be awake. I will keep an open heart, but also a bright mirror to critically, but still with compassion, look at my own shortcomings. That is how we can contribute to that change of society, giving yourself away, holding the mirror up to yourselves. 
because as I have said in many other talks before, there is no such thing as racism. There is no such thing as sexism. There is no such thing as the discrimination against women. These are not things. These are just human beings acting racist, looking down at other genders. These are actions, and that's how it's perpetuated, through people doing it. That seems terrible, but it's not an abstract thing. It's a very concrete thing, a very concrete happening where we have the chance to make a difference. Not by continuing the judging, but by offering an alternative. If somebody, if you see somebody act without reflecting, playing out one of those thought patterns of, oh yeah, this person is less than we are anyway. Repeating a judgment and piling it upon the judgment that they just had is not the solution. Even Dr. King says, you can have no influence over those for whom you have underlying contempt. And we all know how challenging this is. Even though we take great humor in having a toilet brush with orange bristles and somebody's face on it and sticking it in the toilet. That cannot be an attitude that we carry with us if we really want to make a difference. In Dr. King's word, it would be different. He would, call, he would, he would say it like this about uh, uh, nonviolence and, and uh, compassion. He said, here is the true meaning of, value, of the value of compassion and nonviolence. When it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers and sisters who are called the opposition. Coming back to no others. Huh?
Genkai. May I ask a question? Sure. Why is it that it's so difficult to do what we're doing involves endurance, pain, energy, and it's so easy to indulge in greed and so appealing to so many people to indulge in greed, anger, desire, and oppression. Why is it so attractive to so many people? They don't even try. They just do it. It's a very interesting and good, good question, right? That is happening. One of the reasons why it's happening is uh, a question like this happens because we're still thinking of them as being others. And when we change the question and ask ourselves, Am I still engaged, even marginally, in those activities? And we probably will find out, yeah, yeah, yeah. guilty as charged. So, then we can give the answer, yes, why? Because we are human beings. We are human beings, and even though we might have some awakened or more awake mind and heart that sees this, what would bring us to look at them and others is the problem. That is the problem, because it's so easy to objectify others when they serve us. It's so easy to project everything we don't like about ourselves onto others. And that's the nature of an ego that wants to attach to being supreme, reigning across all spheres of being. If your ego could, it would control your sleep. Sometimes maybe you have dreams where your ego comes in and tells you all kinds of wonderful things uh, or not so wonderful. But stagnation, fixation, and the, the ego is very, very tricky with that. You know, yes, we are, to a certain degree, we are still animals, you know. We are mammals. We consume other living things. And we have a very strong sense of, I have to survive. Survive, survive, survive. That's natural. But we have this mind that Rinzai talks about that allows us to see not only with the six sense organs but also then with our hearts. So 
We can't answer that question. We can. But the answer will not bring us even a smidgen of an inch closer to being different than, than that. Yeah. Pigs, snakes, and roosters. I mean, we have a whole menagerie here. And just learning how to deal with it. No others. No others. When you meet a person who is the perfect button pusher for you, does anyone know such a person in their lives? Uh, yeah? No, not me. Yeah. You don't know anyone who. Nobody can push your buttons? No. Impossible. Not no, no. no. Uh, right. right. But we all know there is somebody out there who is just waiting, yeah? Mm. And now that also goes into the direction of your question, Genkai. When that happens, this is one of the hardest things to do. This is myself. This person is yourself. This is myself. And then they push. <laughs> it probably will do what it usually does, yeah? yeah you're not going to get angry. But already, already, you have given yourself. Now, th this is the opposite. You have taken away for a moment the distance. This is myself. And that is true for whoever it may be. Opposition is a great solution in a political place, in a two-dimensional place where we have these polarities. But in your practice and in your life, in your relationship with other human beings, getting rid of that distance, getting rid of the other, is the practice that will allow to hold all. And it is difficult. Just as Genkai said, it is very difficult. But you read about other Zen people when it's always said, the more you have to bear. In the Diamond Sutras, yeah? in the Diamond Sutra, Roshi, Shingyo Roshi always cites that about the karmic, those who had bad karma currently, because of their challenges, they will be able to emancipate themselves. Challenges that seem insurmountable, those are the chances we have sitting here on the cushion to get over it. We want to push them aside, like we want to push all the dirty things under the carpet. But no, we have to learn to get closer and closer to that bugaboo, to that insurmountable, until we fully 
have no distance and you will see. It's a great thing to keep in mind in your practice. You're not suffering. Don't look at the suffering as something that we have to get out of the way so we can get to the point of serenity. No. It is only suffering as long as there is this opposition, you know. The more we press, the more you will feel it. At some point, the ego has to put the hand onto the, uh, onto the, the, the power sander, you know, with the belt, the belt sander. <laughs> Ego doesn't like that, yeah. But the more we push, the more we become aware of these insurmountable challenges. But as I said, by getting rid of the distance and not having it as the other, this is myself. This pain is myself. It's all part of our lives. So that is the greatest chance. So give yourself that space of no distance. You can have no influence over those for whom you have underlying contempt. Beginning with yourself. Beginning with yourself. Nonviolence in that context of our practice can learn from what Dr. King said here. Nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, but you refuse to hate him. Reflect on that for your own dealing with yourself. And it says also, let me see, in my many, here, yeah. Dr. King must have some, had some kind of, this, this sounds to me like karma. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in the struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. Our practice with ourselves has to be nonviolent too. Even though we heard Rinzai talking about slaying your parents, slaying the Buddha, the nonviolent way of doing that. There's one more that I have here on the page that I really think is very great.
here it is. Through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In our practice with each other, with ourselves, the same is true. Please don't ever fall into Zen athletics. One of those three animals really likes to do that, Zen athletics. Develop that openness of heart that you can feel when you see a, a, somebody like Dr. King who dedicated his life to the fullest in such a way that his life was prematurely taken from him by somebody who saw him as what? As other. As soon as our thinking, our feeling of otherness comes into play, racism, sexism, xenophobia, whatever other terrible thing you can add to that comes into existence. So please, for the rest of this session, encounter no other. Encounter yourselves in everything that is. This is myself. This is This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.